God, it is hard to think of a more, <clears throat> a more lofty or more important assignment than raising the next generation. And so, God, I pray that you would empower uh, our mothers in this church to bring up a godly generation that fears you, that loves the gospel, that loves the church, and is devoted to your kingdom. Uh, God, we're so, I'm, we're so grateful for the sacrifices that many of our mothers have made um, to make us who we are. Uh, Father, at the same time, we recognize that for many, this day can be a day of sorrow uh, because it brings up feelings of loss or regret or perhaps even estrangement. Uh, for some, this day brings to the surface the pain of unfulfilled dreams, and so we pray for those this morning. Uh, so on days like this, God, we ask that you would remind all of us deep in our souls that our primary identity in this life is not as mothers or fathers, but as sons and daughters of the King. And would you remind all of us, especially our women here today, that they hold a special place of honor before you, not because of a particular assignment you've given them in life, but because of the worth that you have placed upon them when you chose them for your kingdom and the plans that you have had for them since the day they were born. And for those who struggle with the pain of loss on this day, God, would you remind them that even better than one day of recognition each year is the joy of being called a daughter of the King for all eternity. And so, God, we thank you for the gift that mothers are. And we thank you for revealing so much of who you are through them in our lives. So, Lord, we pray and we thank you in, in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been studying for the last couple of weeks about how Jesus overcomes our shame and our fear and various emotions that we feel in this life. And today, I want us to consider how Jesus overcomes our sorrow because we all face sorrow. We all face sorrow. And for, I mean, as we just prayed, for many in this room, today is a day of sorrow, a day of loss or a day of grief or whatever. Today is, could be a day of sorrow. But if you read the Gospels, which are biographies of Jesus's life, one of the themes that comes up over and over and over and over again, and this is like the thing that Jesus did. Jesus sought out those people who were overwhelmed with sorrow and he gave them joy. That's what Jesus did and that's what Jesus does. And in fact, Jesus even says that sorrow is one of life's greatest blessings because it awakens us to our need for him and helps us to greater appreciate his grace and his comfort. I mean, it was Jesus, the first words of his most famous sermon were, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So if you experience sorrow, Jesus is saying, you're blessed. Because in your sorrow, you can, Jesus can meet you there. And you can experience his grace and his comfort in ways that you could have never imagined. And so today, the, the text I've chosen, I want us to look, it's from John chapter 2. And I want us to look at Jesus's very first miracle, which I think Jesus's first miracle was kind of like it was like a preview of what his whole ministry would be of his whole life's purpose. So, you know, one of my favorite things about going to the movies is that I show you got to show up early. Right. Everybody said, well, you know, it, we got 15 minutes of previews. It's OK. No, no, no. I'm not missing the previews. That's the best part. Because you get to see the new movies that are coming out, Avengers, you got to see the Spider-Man trailer. And those tra what do those trailers do? The trailers give you a preview of what the, the ultimate movie is going to be about. And that I believe that's what Jesus is doing in his first miracle in John chapter 2. He's giving us a glimpse 
of what his entire life will be. And what he does in this miracle is he turns water into wine. But what I think he's really doing is he's showing us that he has come to turn sorrow into joy. Look at John chapter 2 verse 1. It says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. So we're at a wedding in this town called Cana in Galilee. Jesus is there. His mother Mary is there. And the disciples are there. And in ancient cultures, like the Jewish culture of Jesus' day, uh, one of the things, they put a heavy emphasis on family and heavy emphasis on community. And so because of this, Weddings in the first century in, you know, in places like Galilee, they were very different than weddings in 21st century America. Now, weddings are a big deal in our culture, but weddings in American culture are mostly about the couple. It, this is why, you know, girls dream their whole lives about, and they've got, now they've got Pinterest boards. It used to be scrapbooks, but girls dream their whole lives about their wedding. It's their big day. It's their special day. You know, this is why, you know, you have bachelor parties and you celebrate the person who's getting married. You celebrate the bride and the groom. And that's great and good and that's fine. And we celebrate that. But at the time of Jesus, the wedding, it was a celebration about more than just the couple. It was a celebration about the entire community because they didn't understand marriage as to just an individual transaction. It was something that the community was a part of. And so when, when a couple got married, I mean, you've got families and families and friends and you've got a whole community that's involved in this because they were going to, it was the community together was going to raise the children. The community together was going to be there for the family, for the couple. And so it wasn't just an, about the individual couples. It, it was a part, it was a celebration for the whole community. And, and because of this, the wedding in these cultures, it wasn't even just one night. You know, when we celebrate a wedding, it's maybe it's one night, maybe two. You got the rehearsal dinner. But in first century culture, they would last an entire week because this was a big deal. And it would have involved a public feast for the entire town. Uh, the, and the groom's family would have provided uh, food and drink and entertainment for everyone in the community for seven days. And I mean, this, this is a, Cana is a small, small, small town. Even today, it's a small town. But at this time, there's maybe a few hundred people. And so everybody was invited. This was the biggest event in Cana that week. Everyone celebrated. It's a small town, but not only is Cana a small town, it was a poor town. I mean, this was a working class town. So weddings, this was about the only time in these people's lives that they would experience any sort of luxury. This was the one time in their life that they would be drinking or one time, you know, there'd be a few times in their lifetime that they would have a wedding feast like this where they would enjoy the nicest wine, that they would eat the best food. I mean, this is one of those weeks of their life where they didn't feel poor or insignificant. This is a big deal. See, the wedding party was a cause for celebration because weddings represented the best of what life could be. So this week, uh, Jordan Merkel, he's a member of our church. But he works for a Christian nonprofit and they had their spring benefit gala and he invited my wife and I to go and we kind of for free we got to go and they had a free dinner and it was at the Yale Club. Okay, like Yale University Club. And uh, so my wife and I threw on my best suit, my, she threw on a dress and we went and a couple other people from our church were there. And I mean, like, so you got to understand, I, I'm a public school guy. Okay. 
So Yale Club is not something I do very often. My wife had to tell me which forks and knives to use. She's like, wrong, that's the salad fork. You're doing this all wrong. And like, I just don't know how to act at the Yale Club. All right? I'm a public school kid. That's who I am. But for one night, there I am. I'm wearing a suit. And I'm hanging out in the Yale Club in Manhattan. We got the view. We're on like the 30th floor. And we've got views of the city. And for like that three-hour night and that steak dinner, I felt... Like I was this, I felt like a Rockefeller or something. And this is what it would have been like for these people in Cana. I mean, they, this would have been like a moment where they felt out that they were, they got lifted from their ordinary lives and got to experience luxury for just a few days. And so this is a time of great celebration, great excitement. But then the worst possible thing that could have happened, happened. The wine ran out. Verse 3, it says, when the wine ran out, this is a disaster. The mother of Jesus said to Jesus, they have no wine. The wine ran out. And so here they are just a few weeks into a a few days into a week long party and the alcohol has run out. So you've got a seven day supply of wine and it's gone within three days, which means that somebody at that party overdid it. (laughs) Right. And so which is a lesson for everybody. Like, don't be that guy. It ruins the party every time. Moderation, okay? Moderation. But this doesn't seem like a big deal. They ran out of wine. So what? It seems trivial. But this would have meant that the party was over. Because wine was the central element to parties in these, in these feasts. Wine was central to the meal. It was central to the entertainment. It was central to the symbol of celebration. So when the wine ran out, it meant the dream was over. I mean, wine is so central. So one of my Jewish friends, we were talking about Passover. I asked him how Passover was, and he said, the wine was great. It was my barber. And he talked to me about the wine for five minutes. Because in in, in these Jewish feasts, like the wine matters. And here it goes, the, the central element to the party had run out. The party was over. It was the symbol of celebration. And so when the wine ran out, that meant the dream was over. And so all these people had to go back into their real lives. No more luxury, no more celebration. Back to their ordinary life, back to their ordinary job with all their problems, with all their pain, with all their overdue rent. The wine ran out. And it was, ran out early. They were expecting seven days. They had a seven day plan and it only lasted three days. See, the wine was the joy of the feast, not just an add on to the party. It was the party. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they ran out of wine. Jesus is she is essentially saying, Jesus, they ran out of joy. It's back to the ordinary now. And isn't this like isn't this how life is? Sometimes we run out of joy. We feel like. See, just like this wedding was centered on the wine, we all center our lives on something. Whether it's relationships or success or money or competition or recognition or achievement or security or perhaps even our children. And when those things get threatened or when those things get taken from us or when those things don't behave how we want them to behave, we feel like our joy has dried up. We all see we all every one of you has a plan for how you want your life to go. We all plan for our lives to go a certain way. And just like the groom did not expect the wine to run out, most of us do not live with an expectation that our joy is going to run out. 
We don't plan for relationships to dissolve. We don't plan for sickness to come or death to strike. We don't plan to be laid off. We don't plan for our kids to rebel. Or we don't plan for our presentation at work to bomb. But those things happen. And we, play, we put our hope for our joy. We put our joy in those things. And when those things dry up, our dreams of what life can be is shattered and we lose our joy. But the invitation of Jesus... We make something the joy of our lives, whether it is our identity in whatever it is that we think is important about us, whether it's our job, our relationships, our success, whatever. We, we make something the joy of our lives, but the invitation of Christianity is to make Jesus the actual joy of your life. See, the promise of Christianity is that Jesus won't run out. When other cups in your life are drying up, there is a promise He promises that his cup will always overflow with his presence and with his comfort. To mix metaphors a little bit, he told the woman at the well, he said that I am living water. Whoever drinks of me will never thirst again. But Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. He's talking about the cross. But his mother said to the servants, do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Isn't that strange? I love this picture of faith. She turns to the servants and the wine has run out and she turns to the servants and she says, all right, look to Jesus. Servants, look at Jesus. Do whatever he tells you to do. Now, if I could sum up my desire for my life, my desire for my children's life as a pastor, my desire for every one of you in this room, your life, you know what I want for your life? For you to do whatever Jesus tells you to do. And this is what Mary says to the servants. She says, Do what Jesus tells you to do. Simple trust, simple faith. Mary didn't know what Jesus was doing. She didn't know how he would do it. The servants didn't know what Jesus was doing, certainly. They didn't know how he would do it. But Mary knew that Jesus could be trusted. And so she told them, just do what this guy tells you. Do what Jesus tells you. And now look at this. It says, now there were six stone water jars. I've seen them before. I've seen like a replica of what these look like. They're like this big. These stone water jars. They were there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So I average the math out. Let's say that's 25 gallons per jar. That's 150 gallons of water. And Jesus said to the servants, fill those jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, it had now become wine and he did not know where it came from. But listen to this. I love this. But the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. See, I love this. And there's something for us to to, there's application for us here. The master of the ceremonies. This is the wedding planner. This is Frank. Okay, for father of the bride friends. Martin Short, Stephen, those were the good days of comedy, weren't they? But the master of ceremonies, his job was to make sure the wedding didn't fall apart. And it had fallen apart. And so he's freaking out. And he's he's panicking. He's so concerned that the wedding had fallen apart. He was unable to see where the gift of the wine was coming from. He didn't see the miracle. He didn't see the grace of Jesus. But the servants did. Why? Because I'm, and I'm just, this is conjecture here, but I think the master of the ceremonies was so concerned with the loss of the party 
And he was panicking and he was running around. And he was like, hey, somebody can maybe somebody make a run to go get some more wands. Do we have any left? Is there any in the basement? Is there any? And he was panicking and he's trying to get, keep everybody happy and he's trying to do everything in his own strength. And all he's thinking about is the loss of joy. Only he's, he's only thinking about the anxiety he felt that he missed what was going on right beside him. He missed what Jesus was doing in his midst because he was so panicked about his, his personal loss of joy. But the servants knew. And how did the servants knew? They knew that Jesus was restoring the joy that had been lost because they were being obedient to what Jesus was doing right in front of them, even in the midst of the, of the loss of the party. Leslie Newbegin said, It is those who simply put themselves under Christ's orders who know where the wine comes from and are able to b- believe and go on following. And here's what I think he's saying here. If you are in a season of sorrow right now, And you want to know what God is up to. And you want to know if God is trustworthy or not. Start by being obedient to the commands that you know He has given you. Just start by being obedient to what you know He has given you. Take the first step of obedience, even in your pain, even in your sorrow. And as you begin to do what Jesus has called you to do, I believe you will see the areas where He is providing the wine. The areas where he is restoring the joy, so to speak. And I believe you will have eyes to see what he's doing all around you. But I'm convinced of this and I'm convinced of this because I've seen it in my own life. When you become so caught up in your own sorrow and when you become consumed by your own fears and your own anxieties, you will be preoccupied with what is going on in your life. You will become so preoccupied with your own fear and worry and anxiety and sorrow that you will be blind to how God is working in your life and working all around you. See, when we, like these faithful servants, will fix our, put our attention outside of our own sorrow to what Jesus is saying and doing to us, I believe we can move forward in faith that He will provide the joy needed to continue on. Now, I don't know what that is for you. I don't know what sorrow you're facing today. And I know that in my life, I've faced some immense sorrow. And I've not, I've, it's taken me sometimes months and years to see Jesus in the middle of it. Because I've become so consumed with my own anxiety. But I don't know where you are today. Whatever it is, that sorrow that you feel is pulling your focus off of God and what He is calling you to do. But I think we see here in this text that if you fix your eyes on your sorrow, you will continue to be consumed by your sorrow. But if you will fix your eyes outside of your sorrow onto Jesus, who is greater and better and can restore your sorrow into joy, I believe you'll begin to see the small ways that God is already working in your life and the small ways that God is working around you. And he can lift you up out of your sorrow and bring you into greater joy. See, the master of the feast was concerned with what was lost and he wasn't able to see what Jesus was doing. But the servants were busy doing what Jesus said and they got to see exactly who Jesus was. See, the master of the feast then called the bridegroom. And he said to him, look, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. This makes sense, right? Wait till everybody's got a little bit of a buzz. Give the good stuff first. And people are like, oh, this is great wine. And then you switch it out with the cheap stuff because people don't taste it anymore. And the master of ceremony is like, yeah, that's what everybody else does because they're cheap. 
But you have saved the good wine until now. Oh, you're so generous. And the crowd begins to applaud the groom and say, oh, look how generous this, the groom is and his family. Do you see what's happening? Jesus took six ordinary jars of water and turns them into six jars of the finest wine anyone has ever tasted. And the master takes a sip and says to the groom, he's like, whoa, this is good stuff. And he compliments the groom for the groom's generosity for giving good wine to his guests. And you've got to think that people probably talked about this party for years. You remember the wine he served? Do you remember? It was so good. He kept giving us good wine and kept giving us good wine. He didn't didn't bring out the franzia at the end of the party. He kept giving us the good stuff. And you've got to think that they were, and you've got to think the groom became very popular in that little town. What a generous guy. What a nice guy. And here's what I want you to see. In this story, it's Jesus who does the work, but the groom gets the reward. That's the gospel of Jesus. Jesus does the work, but we get the reward. See, the gospel, that's just a word that Christians use, and it means good news. And that is, and the, and the good news is that the scriptures tell us that this is how Christianity works, that none of us in this room have lived a life that is worthy of God's favor or God's blessing. All of us have failed ourselves, failed God, failed the people around us, all of us None of us have brought enough wine to the party, so to speak. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. None of us has lived our lives in such a way that we deserve the blessings and the riches of God. But the scriptures tell us that Jesus has. He's lived a life perfectly obedient to the Father. He lived a life that is perfectly righteous in every way. And He deserves every reward that God has to offer. He lived the perfect life that you and I can never live. And yet, He died the death that we deserve. And He rose from the dead. And the Scriptures promise that if we will follow Him, if we will align ourselves with Him, if we will repent and turn from the various things in our lives that we have made our ultimate joy and make Him the ultimate joy of our lives, this promise of the Scriptures is that when we get to the gates of God's kingdom, we will be asked, why do you belong? What credentials do we have to merit us to enter into the kingdom of God? And Jesus is going to advocate for us in that moment. And he's going to say, it's okay there with me. And we will enter into the kingdom with the king. Just like in this story, Jesus did all the work and the groom got all the reward. So goes the gospel. Jesus does the work of purchasing our salvation. Jesus does the work of of paying the penalty for all of our sin. And we get the reward. He gets our death. And He gives us His life. He takes the cross and we receive the kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made Him who knew no sin to become our sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Verse 11 closes out this story. It says this, The first of His signs Jesus did at Galilee and manifested His glory. Basically, I mean, it's what I said earlier. This sign is showing who Jesus is and what Jesus is about. And it says, and his disciples believed in him. Now, every miracle in the Gospels 
is a sign of what the kingdom of God is like, what Jesus is like, and how we're to relate to him. And I want to give you one thing that we can learn from this miracle, this sign about what Jesus is like and what he is accomplishing in our lives. And it's this. Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. He moves us from sorrow to joy. This is one of the most well-known of Jesus' miracles. Much is made of the fact that Jesus turned water into wine. And, I mean, people want to make a big deal about the fact that it's water and wine. And did Jesus actually drink alcohol? And, well, what they actually had was watered down. It wasn't real like what we have. And they want to make it about the wine. It's not about the wine. It's about Jesus. This story is, the point of this story is that Jesus kept a party from stopping. A celebration that was happening that had ended, Jesus picked it back up and helped it continue on. And there was a celebration in your life. There was something that you were putting your joy in and you, had, you celebrated it and you have lost it. And you feel like you will never have joy, like you can never celebrate again. And Jesus has come to bring joy back into your life. See, it wasn't wine that Jesus was making. Jesus was making joy for those who had lost it. See, Jesus is all about celebration. He's all about joy. And I find it funny because when we think of Jesus sometimes and all the portrayals of Jesus, like, you know, if you go to a museum and you see pictures of Jesus or you see movies of Jesus in most of like TV or television, Jesus is always so serious, isn't he? He's somber. And it's like sometimes these pictures of Jesus, it's like, man, Jesus is on a mission. He's going to save the world. Don't mess with Jesus unless you have something important to say. He's busy. Don't bother Jesus. That's kind of the portrayals we get of Jesus. He's very serious. He's busy. Don't bother Jesus. But that's not the way the Gospels portray Jesus at all. That's not the way that Jesus loves to party. Jesus loves to celebrate. Jesus enjoys spending his time with people. Jesus... This should tell you something about Christianity and what Christianity should be. Jesus actually got invited to parties. You know? Like, what? That means he was fun. In fact, in the Bible, Jesus, his name, they call him often in the New Testament, is the Son of Man. And the, the Son of Man came, that phrase, is completed only three ways in the New Testament. The Son of, came, Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Oh, yeah, we, that's important. We know that was Jesus' mission. Uh, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Okay, we know that's important about Jesus' humility. And the only other way that the Scriptures finish that statement is the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Like, that is, that's an identity marker of Jesus. Like, one of the things the Pharisees like, accused him of is he eats with drunkards and gluttons. Jesus had a good time. I love this. Robert Karras, who's a New Testament scholar, says, In just about every story in the Gospels, Jesus is either coming from a party, at a party, or going to a party. I like that Jesus. Jesus loved celebration. Jesus loved seeing people experience joy, especially those that were plagued by sorrow. If you just want to do a study in your own time, read through the Gospels. And look at every one of Jesus' meals and look who he's eating with. It's always with somebody who's experiencing sorrow. And they always leave that meal with greater joy than when they began. This is what Jesus does. He comes into the lives of those who are filled with sorrow. And he gives joy so that we can continue to celebrate. And some of you in this room, you've lost your joy. I don't know how. I don't know why. 
Perhaps you pinned all your hopes on a relationship. Uh, You pinned all of your hopes on some idea of a perfect life. Maybe you pinned all your hopes on a certain expectation of what your family would look like or what your relationships would look like or what your career would look like. But you've put your hopes in one place and those hopes have just slipped through your fingers. Your heart was broken. You lost someone you love. You experienced some type of abuse. Maybe your five-year plan isn't coming to fruition. Some achievement you were hoping to attain never materialized. Your wine ran out. That's what I'm trying to say. And you feel like the party is over and you feel like there's nothing left to celebrate. But the message of Christianity is that if you will pin your hopes on Jesus, he is the cup that will never run dry. Yeah, in life there will be disappointments. There will even be major disappointments. Sure, Jesus said that. In this life you will have troubles, but take heart because I have overcome the world. There will be times when you lose your joy. There will be times where you feel like the celebration is ending or there's no cause to celebrate in your life. But the promise of Jesus is that he is building a kingdom. And one day he is going to wipe away all brokenness and sin from the earth. And there will be no sickness. There will be no pain. There will be no death. There will be no sorrow. There will be no heartbreak. He will make all things new and restore our joy once and for all. To quote Lord of the Rings. He is making every sad thing come untrue. And in this passage, I love this and I'm almost done. I love that I love that Jesus saved the best wine for last. This ought to give us hope. Whatever is bringing you sorrow today, it will not and it is not the last word over your life. If your hope is in Jesus, you have a promise that he is saving the best for last. And that is that day when we will hear, "Good, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into my rest. Enter into my kingdom, the new heavens and the new earth. That is what awaits us. And because we know what awaits us, we can endure the temporary sorrow that we face today. Paul says that this is light and momentary afflictions that we face today. Well, what we see in eternity will make those look like nothing. And Paul's not some guy who doesn't understand your pain. He's been through a lot. Paul's a guy that was beaten. He was in prison. He was ultimately executed. This is a guy who knows sorrow. And he says our light. And he says momentary afflictions can't even compare to what awaits us in the kingdom. Jesus saves the best for last. And in the new heavens and new earth, there will be a wedding feast that never ends. And there will be jars of wine that never run dry. And you may feel like your wine has run out. Jesus came to pour you another glass and another glass and another glass and another glass. Because Jesus came to make sure that your joy does not run out. And that even when our wine jars feel empty and dry, if we trust and obey him, he will fill our jars with living water. See, this was Jesus' first miracle. And after this, what did he do? He turned blindness into sight, sickness into health, hunger into fullness, disability into dancing, and death into life. Jesus' calling card in the Gospels is that he takes what seems hopeless and he breathes hope back into the situation. So do you feel sorrow today? He brings joy. Have you run out of wine today? Know this, that for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son and that whosoever believes in him will not perish, 
Your sorrow will not, is not the final word over you. It's not going to end you. It's not going to perish you. But you, through Christ, can have everlasting life in a wedding feast where the wine never runs out. Let's pray.